Jonah chapter 4 as we've uh, made our way through this important, though small book of the Old Testament. We come to chapter 4. Isn't it wonderful when that big promotion finally comes through for your brother-in-law? Isn't it great to have all those amazing vacation on the beach photos on your sister's Facebook? We're not so good about enjoying others being blessed. And that's essentially the uh, issue that Jonah faces as we come to chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, we have really arrived at the crescendo of the book, the amazing compassion of God for the Ninevites, these, these pagan foreigners, Assyrians, who repent and humble themselves before God, and he gives them his grace. But in chapter 4, we get to essentially interview Jonah and ask him, so Jonah, how does that make you feel? Verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was really angry that God had shown grace and did not destroy Nineveh. You know, if if this little book had ended with chapter 3, we would have probably concluded that Jonah is the most successful prophet in all of Israel's history. To think that that he, he could walk into this city and with a simple message of God's judgment, the entire city turns into a place of revival. And we would say, yay, Jonah. And yet, as we have chapter 4 for a reason, we are, I think, meant to be shocked at the response of Jonah that he deeply deplored and resented the grace that God gave to them. We have followed his uh, spiritual and physical journey in the opening chapters. The prophet who defiantly disobeys God's instructions to go to Nineveh, heads the other direction, and then God manipulates a storm, a ship, sailors throwing him overboard, and a fish, imagine it, a fish prepared to, to swallow him and preserve him and deliver him back to the Mediterranean shore to start all over again. So what Jonah has experienced is immense Grace. Grace, first of all, in that he was delivered from death. He was headed toward the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, chapter 2 tells us. And he cries out to God, and God saves him from death. Grace, in in, in chapter uh, uh, 3, as as he's given a second chance, having failed so terribly with the ministry assigned to him, God gives him a second chance. And then we would say, incredible grace, that God uses him powerfully. So he is a recipient of grace and 
Yet when Nineveh experiences grace, he is angry. Greatly displeased is the way most Bible translations read. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew phrase is, "But, but to Jonah, it was a great evil. It being God's compassion. To Jonah, it was a great evil. It was just plain wrong. One Bible scholar, Leslie Allen, puts it this way. Jonah finds that the time fuse does not work on his prophetic time bomb. He had said, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he was like waiting for God to do it, but Nineveh was still standing. Because he was convinced that Nineveh was evil people that God needed to judge. Now, there was reason he would think that. He was likely a a, a contemporary of Hosea. Hosea, in, uh, in, in the book we have from him, uh, specifically mentions Assyria three times, the kingdom of Assyria, uh, three times that they would indeed judge, destroy Israel, northern Israel. That's where Jonah's from. So we can understand his concern and his view of Nineveh as their enemy. And so Jonah is really mad about what he perceives to be a divine injustice. These are evil people, God, that you should judge. Injustice is probably the trigger of more anger than about anything. We, we are angry about crime because crime is evil perpetrated by, on, to, on someone who does not deserve it. And so they suffer. And I think maybe it's why we actually enjoy watching uh, movies or TV shows where, you know, the criminal finally is caught and justice is served. The news is not so encouraging because the criminal may not be found and justice may not be served. And when it comes to any personal crime or abuse that somebody suffers, that's the most troubling of all. But it also rears its ugly head, this sense of injustice we have if the simplest things throughout our day, the, the, the car that cuts us off on the freeway, uh, someone who hacks whatever account, or the annoying robocalls in the middle of our evening or day, and we just get angry because this isn't right. And it, what is so strong about this anger is that we know that we're right, about what has gone wrong. And so we have this tension. And Jonah felt it. The fact is, God does care about injustice. He cares about all those, uh, those issues. But to us, it seems he delays his justice. And indeed, he does. And for, for all of our sake, isn't it amazingly good that he delays his justice? But it seems he doesn't have a sense of justice. But there's a dangerous line of sin that we cross when we commandeer justice issues that only God controls. For the same reason that a society like ours uh, does not endorse vigilante justice, that we can take our own revenge, we cannot take over God's job. And that's essentially what Jonah was doing. He was accusing God of doing wrong. 
That's what I said, Lord, when I was still at home. That's why, if, that's why I'm, I'm, he defends himself. That's why I fled to Tarshish. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, God, I decided that you were about to make a big mistake. And I was trying to protect you, God, from this mistake you were going to make. It's almost surprising that verse 3 is not a lightning bolt on Jonah for the way he reacts to God. The irony is that in chapter 2, Jonah praises God for his grace. In chapter 4, he deplores that God has shown grace. If there's a bright spot in these three verses, it would be that Jonah, in verse 2, goes directly to God in prayer. If we have a complaint, what should we do with it? Go directly to God with our complaint. David teaches us that. And while we cannot agree with Jonah's uh, words, we must, I think, commend him and learn from him going directly to God. And haven't we all gone to God with our complaints? But you see, there's something about praying about our complaints directly to God. I think even by maybe voicing them audibly, I think it allows us to hear ourselves. Have you, have you ever really you know, felt, this is so wrong, and, and as you talk to God about it, there's something that happens as we hear ourselves going, what am I really saying? And I, I think we're supposed to know Jonah's prayer for that reason, and uh, assuming Jonah wrote this, it's amazing he's exposing himself like this to record what he prayed Is this not what I said when I was still at home? How revealing is that? He has been suspicious of God's grace all along. (laughs) I knew it. That's why I was so quick to flee. So, Jonah is bringing up to God his own sin. He's admitting his sin without confessing his sin. It's saying, yes, I did that, but that's the right thing to do. When obviously it was the wrong thing to do because he, he sinned by his disobedience of God's instructions. Now he has piled upon that the sin of his hatred for the people that God obviously loves. But Jonah despised the Ninevites because they were Assyrian. In other words, he despised them for their race. It's racism. Jonah probably did not know any Assyrians personally until he walked into the city preaching to them. But he would have known uh, the reputation of the Assyrian army. They were a threat to his nation. Uh, But Jonah was judging the entire nation based on what the government was doing. That's like like, uh, hating all Germans because of what Hitler did or hating all Iraqis because of what Saddam Hussein did. So it was nothing less than a really a spiritual uh, racism that I don't care if God judges these people because they are the race that is our enemy. Uh, Obviously race keeps coming up in in our society and if we as believers are uh, hanging on to any defense of Racism, uh, attitudes, influences, we have to take that very seriously, especially in light of our 
spiritual worldview. It was Jonah's issue. He felt that he, as an Israelite Jew, was entitled to the favor of God and that Ninevites, Assyrians, were not entitled to that. That Jew-Gentile racial issue persisted right into the church age. And so uh, as, as, God in the, in the, as, as Christ in the New Testament is drawing together Jew and Gentile, he had to con- Paul or whoever had to constantly review the fact that we're spiritually alike in Christ. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, uh, being the spiritual baptism, have, been, have clothed yourself with Christ. You, you have this new identity, like a, a, like a set of clothes. This is now who you are. It's not the skin color. It's not what? It's not Jew or Gentile, slave or free. It's not male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So we are spiritually alike when we are clothed in Christ. That's a glorious truth. And it has to inform just the way we, we see ourselves and our world, that race, race and social economic and, and gender does not make us spiritually uh, superior or inferior. And we have to just simply ask ourselves then, when there are people that we don't like, understandably, some people are less likable. When there are people that we don't like, is that going to be transformed by our view of how God so loved the world? Um, there will be people that we are in conflict with, maybe. It's a work issue, or it's a political viewpoint. And so we have history of arguing with them and disagreeing with them and, and their views anger us and we can feel so right and could be. And yet, does that actually affect the way we view them spiritually? We would be less inclined, less interested, take less of an opportunity or even see the opportunity of praying for and bringing the gospel to them. We can so easily rationalize our distaste for certain people for Seemingly righteous reasons. They don't believe the Bible. They, don't, they defend certain sins. They, you see, it's very natural to think like Jonah. It's very supernatural to think like God. And so Jonah, in his patriotic and nationalistic allegiances, it elevated those above God's grace for the world. So, just so we begin to recognize where we have Jonah problems. We can see that it was actually then a spiritual problem, but not a theological problem. You know those are different. Take a look at the last part of verse 2. He didn't have a problem with his theology of the grace of God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. (laughs) He's got it all nailed theologically, but you can just read the tone of his voice. You could say, and I don't like it that you are that way if it's for the Ninevites. But he is, he is reciting really a standard understanding of the Old Testament about the compassion of God. 
that God's basic nature is grace. Starting with uh, some 700 years before him in the time of Moses, when Moses asked for God, can I, can I see you somehow? And then and, and, and God passes by, and in, and this is an incredible statement. This is, this is what God proclaims about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Some 400 years later, David would write, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then, uh, probably just a generation before Jonah, Joel writes, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That statement is actually the most identical to what Jonah says. Perhaps he's already seen the written form of this prophecy from his peer a generation earlier, as Joel would write. And you could say Jonah's okay with that one because Joel's talking to Israelites. Repent, Israel, because God is this way, and, and, and Jonah's okay with that. He'd be okay with the chorus, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good to me. He's just not okay with a song that says, God is so good to Nineveh. That one was different. And so Jonah essentially talks himself into a corner when he accuses God of being exactly what God declared himself to be. I don't like that you are what you said you are. Think of the terms gracious. The first term is one of the less common uh, words for, for grace, but it has to do with the object of his grace being needy. The second term is very similar, compassionate or merciful. It's the idea of, of um, uh, kind of top-down, that, that somebody great and superior would actually show compassion, mercy on someone uh, who's mere man and inferior. Slow to anger. Does God have just anger? Yes, but there's a delay factor and, and God is willing to delay his anger longer than you would expect a holy God to do. Yet, if he hadn't, doesn't have that characteristic, the world would continually be obliterated and us with it. Abounding, abounding in love. This, this term is about his steadfast love or uh, the, the term loving kindness. This is the covenant love. This became essentially the, the standard but exclusive description of love between God and Israel. And so this is a very familial kind of love. And I wonder if, if Jonah is, is finding it hard to even say this because, hey, this is about our family. This is not about them. This is for us, God. And finally, that he's one who relents from calamity, that there are breaks on his own justice. So these are God's terms for himself, and Jonah theologically agrees and repeats them. And so these terms can either be something that we resist if applied to others or embrace because they apply to ourselves, and that's what Jonah was happy to do for himself. And it is important that we apply it to ourselves. And if, and if you, for whatever reason, struggle with the nature of God towards you, th these, these are good verses. 
This is something to, to make a note on your phone or a, a three-by-five card someplace to say, who is God? Because I'm struggling with this in my life, but who is he? What is he like? And yet, if he's like that for us, it has to totally transform the way we see others because it is grace. What, what Jonah was objecting to was the grace of God, and grace, by definition, is God's favor towards those who do not deserve it. So, grace is working perfectly in the case of Nineveh. We have a world filled with all kinds of conflict and anger, accusations. It's obvious in society, the news, the family, the politics, whatever it is. And for that reason, though, our world is so hungry for the grace of God. I, uh, I listen to Christian worship music a fair amount. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you're, you're listening to you know, some station or whatever, um, there are relatively few themes in Christian worship music, at least the, the ones that are popular enough to be played and appreciated by many. Relatively few themes, you could categorize them in, but I would have to say that the one that stands out to me the most is the grace of God which would suggest that that is what all of us are hungriest for. And that's a good thing. I believe it's the reason why, in spite of whatever happens in our world, and whatever's all going to go wrong in the coming days till Christ returns, the church of Jesus Christ will keep growing because the appeal of grace is unstoppable. The power of the cross, that there is an absolutely holy and just God, who in spite of his absolute perfect standard reaches out to abject sinners and through the cross says, I will take what you deserve and put it upon my son and then offer you complete forgiveness for free. You just can't stop that appeal. And so that is what the power of grace is about. It's the cross. Some Christians would say or sometimes maybe fear that emphasizing the grace of God too much uh, minimizes sin or diminishes the holiness of God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God's grace is so amazing only because his holiness is so completely demanding. It's when we defend our sin as not sin, it's when we defend our sin as not so serious sin compared to somebody else's, that's when grace ceases to be amazing because we have been defensive. Defiant sinners, take, take the world. Those who live in complete defiance in their sin don't appreciate the grace of God at all. They get zero appreciation. And even Jonah is that example because to the degree that we defend our sin, we won't appreciate the grace of God. Grace is only amazing when we know how deeply we need it. And then it comes full in full glow 
And Jonah was missing out on that because at this point, while he could callously rattle off this list of grace characteristics in God, he could not enjoy the grace of God because he himself was not admitting his own sinfulness. And, and I'd like to think that that's what will change in Jonah. And that's what's happening in this difficult chapter is that God is having to show him himself. So his prayer of complaint is really just exposing that he knows God's grace theologically, but not personally. And it built an anger in him so deep that verse 3, he says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I almost smile. I think that's just drama. Oh God, I'm so angry. I just want to die. He was angry. What drove his anger? The injustice issue. But could it have been also a peer pressure thing? That is, was Joni embarrassed to go back to Israel and say, <clears throat> the Ninevites all repented? The who? Yeah, God spared him. Did Jonah hope he could go home and say, God wiped out those Ninevites? He would have looked like a hero because the Assyrians were the enemy. This way he might fear he comes home as a traitor. What, Jonah? You let him off the hook? So Jonah's caught between the justice that he and the Israelites felt should come upon all Assyrians and between the grace that God wanted to show the Assyrians and God's grace always wins out let's talk about what we learn here first of all as we've seen we see the grace of God God's grace was purchased at the greatest cost of the universe and having purchased something so valuable God is eager to offer and to display it to the world. God so loved the world. Not just you and me, but God so loved Nineveh and anybody else we don't like. So that's the nature of God. What is, what is this teaching us about ourselves? I've, I've put a couple suggestions at the bottom of your outline one is that we need to recognize our double standard of justice. That is, we judge others and want them to pay for their sins, but uh, we defend ourselves as if we somehow uh, deserve the grace of God. So Nineveh should pay, but I get grace. It's classic hypocrisy. Romans 2.3 exposes this. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose you'll escape the judgment of God? Jonah needed Romans. It's amazing how critical we can uh, feel of others, and uh, yet we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. So we, grace is wonderful when it's coming my way. Uh, when... Priscilla and I are having a conversation uh, about someone and we find it drifting into the critical. Something we have 
try to do is to, whichever one of us thinks of it first, ask the question, how are we like this? So if we're feeling critical about whatever, how are we like this? What, what is this teaching us? And there's something that helps us when we allow our naturally critical, judgmental feelings to become a mirror on our own soul. Uh, instead, Jonah applied one standard to himself and another to the Ninevites. Basically, this is what we do in every argument in conflict. If you would think back to your last argument in your home, with siblings or spouses or something that happened on the way to church. Uh, when we're hurt and resentful, what we're really doing is we are minimizing our sin and magnifying the others, right? Because if you're any good at arguing at all, that's what you're going to do. You got, that's, that's what lawyers do, right? And so we become these, these, these uh, self-appointed judges of what is right and wrong, and so we have to reduce our culpability and raise the other person's. That's, that's the human nature that Jonah reveals to us. As these resentments and arguments escalate, what we develop is what uh, the, the marriage book titled Love and Respect calls the crazy cycle, if you're familiar with that book, Love and Respect. And, and so the attack and defend mechanisms kick in. And nothing will solve it except grace. Something has to reverse the escalation of that. Jesus told the parable in Matthew 18 about the servant of the king who owed this unpayable debt, 10,000 talents, huge financial sum. And the king, seeing the incapability of the man to pay, forgave the debt. But then this man himself had a servant who owed him a mere 100 denarii. And he says, you pay it. I'm going to put you in jail till you pay it. Debtor's prison. And then the king found out. And he threw the guy in jail. His servant. Who would not forgive as he had been forgiven. And Jesus said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If you don't imitate my grace. Grace flows down. God to us becomes a model of us to others. Do we have grace for others? Jonah struggled with grace towards others because he had a trouble with the justice of God. Secondly, we have to recognize our struggle then with God's grace to others. One of the best examples in Scripture of that is the prodigal son. Actually, his brother, right? So the prodigal son goes to daddy and says, give me my inheritance now, before you die. Incredibly, the father of the story agrees and gives him his share of the inheritance. He goes off and wastes it all on a wild lifestyle. And when the money and his friends are gone, he finds himself feeding pigs, particularly repulsive to Jewish people, the audience of Jesus, when he told the story. 
And finally, the prodigal son reasons that if I just went home and was a servant to my dad, they're at least eating well. And he goes home and finds to his great surprise that after all of his foolishness, the father is looking for him down the road, and as he comes, his father goes to him and embraces him and brings him home and, and holds a huge party. And then the camera shifts from that amazing scene of grace over to what is probably the main point of the story. And you look at the older brother. And the older brother is deeply resentful that the father is showing such grace to his foolish little brother. And so he says, I won't have, be a part of it, Dad. Luke 15, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. And he said to him, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The message of the older brother is you need to celebrate the grace that I have for others who you perceive to be worse than you. In a similar story and maybe even more close to home for us as we might think of one another relationships is the story of the workers who were each hired by the landowner to do a job. Some came early in the day, and the master, the owner, said, will you work for me today for a denarius? Yes. Some came a little later, and the owner made the same deal and said, would you work for me the rest of the day for denarius? Yes. All the way till it was down to one hour worth of work remaining, and the master says to them, will you work for denarius? Sure. So at the end of the day, it came time to, to, to pay up, and he gives everyone equally a denarius. But of course, those who had worked all day resented it and said, that, that, you, that, that, that's wrong. And so Jesus said, on behalf of the landowner in the story, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I, chose, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? There's, there's a point of us just playing accepting God's grace as a sovereign bestowal. Appreciate the grace of God for you. And it's not our job to judge God for how he shows grace to others, focusing instead on the fact that we have been freely given. And so our attitude, like his, must be to freely give. Don't begrudge the sister's vacation, the brother-in-law's promotion, the uh, 
praise that someone gets that you don't. The success, the health, the wealth. It addresses all of those jealousy issues as well. If we can simply appreciate that grace has flown, has, 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 has flows down to us, and so we can be people from whom grace flows to others. Let's pray, and then in these closing moments, we can celebrate that grace for us through our communion service. Heavenly Father, we come before you as recipients of your grace, needing it, probably not realizing we are benefiting by your grace every day. Lord, if you would so immerse us in your grace that it would fit us with different glasses with which to see and to appreciate your grace wherever we see it given to us in the body of Christ, but especially as we become instruments to bring your grace to the rest of the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.